Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, tonight, we are continuing our Kingdom of the Cults uh, study with uh, Walter Martin in this uh, wonderful book. I, I hope if you haven't bought it, I hope that maybe you'll invest in it. It's probably one of the, the best works, in my opinion, on the market today that kind of explains all the different cults that are in America primarily. But, I mean, they're, they're not limited to America because, as we know, some of them started other places and then came to America. Um, so, but... Um, it's primarily about the cults that we deal with in this area. And so who, who have we done so far? Can y'all tell me who all we've done? Who did we do first? Jehovah Witnesses. We did the JWs first, so they hate us now. And then after we did them, we did the Mormons. And then after we did the Mormons, who did we do? Scientology. And then after Scientology, we did Christian science, which is neither Christian nor science. Did y'all, did y'all, did y'all figure that out? It's, it's neither. I mean, there's n- none of it. None of it is in, in any of it, so I don't, understand. I don't understand all that. And then tonight, we are looking at Buddhism, um, and uh, it, it's about as frustrating as the rest of them. Uh, it really is. Uh, we're going to probably do two nights. Um, we, 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 I probably could have squeezed it all in one night, but I think the Christian response we're going to do, because uh, he did a really good section on that, and so I'm going to put that in the PowerPoint, and we'll, we'll look at that, and then a video next Wednesday night. There's about a 15-minute video that a guy made that's really, really, really good. I watched it today, and so we'll play that, look at the Christian response, and then we'll close, we'll close the chapter on Buddhism and figure out what we're going to do. Where we're going to go uh, after this, um, I think I finally made the decision today there is a study out there. Who remembers the study that we did called Through the Bible in One Year with Alan Stringfellow back a, back a few years ago? Y'all remember that one? Got a lot of good positive feedback from that. Well, Dr. Stringfellow did a volume two, and the volume two is called Great Truths, Great Truths of the Bible, where it's a systematic compilation of all the great doctrines of the Bible. Okay, so we're, we're going to start that. Now, when we start that, I don't know. It'll probably be... This is February, right? Um, it'll probably be March, but we will be getting information out to you so that you can buy the book if you wish, or we can buy it and then, and then supply it. You can just pay the church. We'll, we'll figure that out over the next couple weeks and, uh, and get that done. But I think it'll be a really good study for us, and we'll probably do that uh, for several months through the end of the year, I would think, because it's, or, or, we, or we, may, we may do a quarter and then come out and go back to small groups. We're, we're still, trying to, still trying to figure all that out. Uh, just, and we'd like to try to get your input on those types of things. So, All right, well, anyway, Kingdom of the Cults. Buddhism, session one. And of all days that we start studying Buddhism, what is today? Valentine's Day. All right, all right. Well, well believe it or not, um, I don't think love is a, is a big principle in Buddhism. I, not that I remember reading. Uh, Nirvana is one of the key teachings, but I don't want to get on those rabbit trails already, but here's just some pictures uh, that I found of the, of the Ida Boodle. <laughs> I'm so sorry. My goodness gracious, getting tongue-tied already. The Buddha Idol. My goodness, maybe I need to be on drugs. I don't know. Now, who is that? Do you know who that is? Yes, yes. He is still alive and well and still speaking the world over, uh, all over the place. And I don't know, you know, he fell into a bunch of controversy not too long ago. Who remembers why? Anybody remember why? He kissed a young boy on the mouth uh, in, in, the, in a, like a public forum, and, uh, and it, 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 he got in a lot of trouble. I mean, I mean the world just kind of yelled at him, and then he came back out and apologized for it. But it was kind of weird what he did. It was kind of a, it was kind of a strange thing. But that, that, is, that is the guy that is currently the Dalai Lama right now. All right, quick facts on Buddhism. Siddhartha Gautama followed the paths of previous Buddhas or enlightened ones until he discovered the middle road. That is a term you will hear a lot through Buddhism, is the middle road, the four noble truths, and the eightfold path, and achieved enlightenment, okay? And for those of you that may be listening by live feed, just to be sure you're not sitting there expecting Christian theology tonight, what we have been doing, as, as we said in the intro, if you're just tuning in, we are going through the false theology of false religions, primarily in America, and tonight we're looking at Buddhism. So as you hear this, this is Buddhist theology, not Christian theology, just to be sure. Because you never know, people kind of come in and come out of live feed sessions, and 
you might just be go nuts if you you know don't understand what we're doing. Uh, huh? A Bill Murray movie, yeah. So Buddhism shows a heavy influence of Brahmanism, gods, goddesses in Buddha's history and teachings. Its description of a universal cosmic consciousness is that of a non-personal essence, sometimes called the void. The Pali Tripitaka text (laughs) is considered by many to be the most reliable teachings of Buddha, although Mahayana Buddhism and other sects add to it. Man suffers because his desires are fixated on the illusion of self, which confines him to non-permanence within the laws of karma and reincarnation. Are y'all already, like, going, what? Self-salvation is achieved by following the middle path, the four noble truths, and the eightfold path. The ultimate goal is to reach the state of nirvana where the self becomes extinguished in the void. That doesn't sound too good to me. What, what do y'all think? Does that sound good to you? It, just, it doesn't sound good to me. <laughs> extinguished. I don't want to be extinguished, you know. It just sounds crazy. All right, now again, we go straight through the book because uh, there's no way, I mean, I could spend, a, somebody could spend a lifetime and, and not have the, the thoroughness that Walter Martin spends on these, on these uh, religions. So, although classical Buddhism is one of the four major world religions and not a cult, as divine in chapter one of this volume, meaning a Christian, a Christian cult, it still birthed a cultic brood that was repackaged in many ways including Scientology, because you remember he claimed to be the what? L. Ron Hubbard claimed to be the second Buddha. Remember that? The second Buddha. Um, uh, Forum, Lifespring, and older forms of Zen and Nikran, Shoshu, and I, I don't know what half those things are. As of 2012, the worldwide estimate for followers of the Buddha stood at more than 488 million. That's a pretty good chunk of folks, wouldn't you say? 48, excuse me, 488 million uh, that, uh, that don't know Christ that will, that will meet Satan when they die because this is a, a false religion. Buddhism, once a religion of the East, has become a popular faith in the West. People from all walks of life are interested in various aspects of Buddhism's religious philosophy, and as we approach this study, it is important to understand why there has been such a penetration of Asian philosophy on American college campuses. Of course, and, and, what, and the reason he gives is correct, but, but there's another reason. That's because we have a lot of Asian people that have moved to the United States. I mean, we have a large population uh, uh, of, of people from the, from the East, okay? People are pursuing Eastern religions in the U.S. because their message has been dressed up to meet our cultural needs. They are responding to it because there is a deep awareness of a need for spiritual reality. And so it's this idea that we, that we will always deal with. Um, whoops, sorry. Oh, man, I went way too far back. Oh, okay. It's this idea that um, all, all roads lead to the same end, that, 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 you know, Buddhism and Scientology and Christian science and and that's your truth, and, and your truth will lead you to the same God. That is absolutely false. That is, that is, that is just, that's a lie. Um, and it's that, that, that form of belief uh, scholars have termed syncretism. Like you synchronize your watches, you syncretize the different religions in the world, which means that you just kind of take them and, and add them all together, and that's what you've got. You just blend all the religions together. Well, did, did, did Jesus say we could do that? No, no, Jesus said exclusive, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. So it's, it's, again, and the reason why this happens in America, and he pointed this out in like the first chapter, being in a free country, uh, being, being free to practice and believe what you want to practice and believe, it opens up the doorway uh, for all of these false religions, okay? So it's up to us as the, as the church of Jesus Christ 
to, to not do it in a mean spirit, obviously, but, but we definitely need to speak out against false theologies and false religions, okay? We, we have to do that um, because if we really believe what, we, what the Bible says, all the people that are sitting up in these, in, these, in, the, in these buildings that have these false religions, where are they going when they die? Right, and should we care about that? Absolutely we should care about that because Jesus cared about that. A great many Christian churches, and I love this statement, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with this, a great many Christian churches are not presenting Jesus Christ's gospel with a compelling relevancy. They are not attempting to come to grips with today's problems and issues. People are quite literally leaving the church in droves because they have not truly heard the gospel, and those with no background whatsoever in historic Christianity go after Eastern religions in mass because they cloak their Eastern philosophy or religion in Western terminology. And remember, that was one of the things that he said from the very beginning was, was uh, these cults are very good at grabbing different terminology to try to, to try to create commonality so you believe you're getting the same thing or something that's related when you truly aren't. So you've got to be, wor words are very important, very important. Meaning of words, very important. Classical Buddhism, all right, here we go. <clears throat> to understand the core of Buddhism and its far-reaching impact on India and the world, one must first become a student of history, which, believe it or not, do most people like history? No, most people do not like history. And that's part of the problem we have in the United States is you have people right now that are trying to rewrite history. What, what, what do they call that version of history? Say it again. Well, that's part of it. The word I'm looking for is, uh, is, it, is it redaction? It's not redaction. What is it? Revisionist. Yeah, a revisionist of revisionist history, which means what we've had passed down for generations is wrong, and, and it has to be rewritten, and the truth has to be told. I mean, I mean, there's no way to tell every... There's no way to tell every piece of history that's happened. That's impossible to record all that. But we have, I believe, that we have faithfully recorded the... Um, the, uh, uh, the most important things that have happened that have, that have shaped our nation and our world. So one must understand history. So 2,500 years ago, Hinduism reigned supreme in India, and the people were subject to it and enslaved by it. Now, I don't know a whole... Does anybody know a lot about of Hinduism and about India? I, I, I don't. I don't know much about it at all. I mean, I, I do know that they had a caste system because I believe that was what Gandhi was fighting against, right? Now, I remember when Gandhi came out, you remember the Gandhi movie back in the 70s? Uh, I believe, um, I don't remember who the actor was, but he was a real, real famous actor at the time. Ben, ben, yes, Ben Kingsley, he played it. And we, and we, actually, we actually took a field trip. Our, our teacher, our, I think it was our history teacher, actually took us on a field trip to the movie to see Gandhi, uh, or Gandhi, however you say his name, so that we could understand that, that part of history. So Hinduism is where Buddhism came out of. Um, so, J. Isamu Yamamoto explains the Indian history. Over 3,000 years ago, the Aryans, a powerful group of Indo-European-speaking people, conquered the Indus Valley. The Aryans instituted Brahmanism. Today, it has developed into Hinduism and the caste system into the Indian culture, which enabled the invaders to maintain the purity of the Aryan race and establish themselves as spiritual and social masters over the native Indians. Well, wow. So, so that happened in other parts of the country. So you mean other parts of the country did evil stuff just like America because America is normally scapegoated for one primary thing in our history, and what is that? Slavery. But, they, but they, they did something very similar, and it was done way before America even existed. How interesting is that? But you don't ever hear about that, right? America is just evil because of slavery. So anyway, just, just interesting the things you learn when you study. The enslaving caste system played an important part for Indian reformers like Buddha who sought liberation from Hinduism. Another important aspect of modern Hindu life, the caste system, began to emerge during the Vedic period. The system of classifying individuals into castes is vocational and related to skin color. The Rig Veda speaks of five social castes. Number one, the, the Brahmins, the priestly or scholarly caste, and I would imagine that would probably be one that would be highly sought after. The, anybody want to try that? Kshatriyas, the warrior-soldier caste, 
then the Vashyas, the agricultural and merchant caste, and then the Sudras, and that's the one that I've heard of before, the peasant and the servant caste, and then the Harajan, the outcast or the untouchables, so they must be the, the poorest of the poor is what I would imagine they are. So that's the caste system, so you're automatically, and, the, and I don't know if y'all, if y'all, fathers, if y'all followed South Africa very much, um, uh, and what was the leader's name from South Africa that was so famous? Um, Mandela. I mean, the big thing they were trying to do was to do away with the caste system, and the caste system was like when you're born into whatever one of those levels you're born into, you're trapped there forever, and there's no way, there's no way to, and, that, and that's something that America that America offers that no other country offers. It doesn't matter where you're born in America. If you're an American, you have opportunity to, to, to do as much or as little as you set your mind towards. So that, those are the five levels of the social classes in Hindu life. And it, it, now, I'm not an expert on Buddhism at all. In fact, this is the, the most I've ever studied on Buddhism. And I know generally karma, nirvana, it's, it's all a bunch of meditation. I mean, I, I kind of knew that kind of stuff. But, um, but this, this caste system and Buddha, it sounds like from reading that, that, he, that he disagreed with that and he wanted to fight against that and to try to break, to try to break free of this caste system um, is, is where it sounds like his motivation came from. Because I don't, I don't recall in the reading him like having a vision like Muhammad claimed he got a vision from an angel. Joseph Smith claimed he got a vision from the angel Moroni and so forth, but I, 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 don't remember, I don't remember reading that. If Maybe I hadn't read it yet. Under Hinduism, the lot of the masses was poverty and despair, and the wheel of reincarnation, or samsara, loomed constantly before them like a never-ending nightmare of suffering and death. Discontent grew among the people, and many searched for something to break the relentless hold of Hinduism. As the vast majority of the people were illiterate and indescribably poor, the gap widened between the few literates and the host of illiterates, between the few princes and rulers and their millions of subjects, between the few privileged of high caste and the great underprivileged population that belonged to the lower caste and outcast. This gap grew wider and wider, and from the hopelessness among the many arose despair. And we could probably understand why? I mean, if you're trapped in that type of social structure and there's no way out, I mean, eventually it's going to collapse. You're going to have rebellion, you'll have revolution, and so forth. So it's, it sounds like it was a terrible way to live. There seemed no escape from the fate of having to endure an endless succession of painful lives before one could be free to merge for eternity with the world soul. So they believe in reincarnation. You come back, you come back all these lives repeatedly. You come back time and time and time again a state known as nirvana. So this world soul is this state of nirvana. And into this religion of strict caste and oppression was born the son of a minor raja or king sometime between 490 and 410 B.C. His philosophy of life would impact the world for centuries to come. And who was that person? Buddha, exactly. Gautama, if I'm saying that correctly, Buddha. Founder of the Buddhist religion was the son of... Sudhodana, a chieftain reigning over a district near the Himalayas in what is known today as the country of Nepal. At an early age, I'm just going to say Buddha, is that okay? <laughs> his true name, Siddhar- well, let me say his name, Siddhartha Gautama, his true name, observed the many contradictions and problems of life. He abandoned his wife and son, not what I wanted to hear, right? When he felt he could no longer endure the life of a rich nobleman, and became a wandering ascetic in search of the truth about life. So you have to wonder, you have to wonder if maybe he felt guilty, maybe, that he was at the level he was and comfortable and he was seeing all this suffering, and so he decided to, to uh, change all that, which abandoning the wife and son obviously wasn't good at all, but, uh, you know, who knows what this guy was thinking. So he became this wandering ascetic in search of the truth about life. Can you think of somebody else that became a wanderer in the Bible? Well, maybe, yeah. I was thinking more Old Testament. Who was sent to the land of Nod? Wasn't Abraham? Yes, 
Cain was sent wandering to the land of Nod, correct. All right. Buddhist historians tell us that after almost seven years of wandering, inquiring, meditating, and searching, he found the what? The true path. Is it the true path? All together say, no, it was not the true path. And great enlightenment, was it great enlightenment? No. Under the legendary bow tree, the tree of wisdom, and thus attained nirvana. Classical Buddhism maintains that cycles of reincarnations are necessary in order to attain nirvana. Uh, my wife is in here tonight. Hey, Angie. Happy, happy Valentine's Day. Now she's freaking out. She's like, what are you about to tell? I was going to tell the story about Sunday school. At Col Remember Columbus? We were talking about reincarnation. Remember that? You think that's worth telling? I got to tell it now? Well, we... Um, when we were, when we were in Columbus, y'all know we came from Columbus, Mississippi, Woodland Baptist Church there for seven years, and I think it was the second year uh, I got the burden to start a pastor Sunday school class with the intent of not, you know, pulling people from other classes, but guests that were coming in or people that had not been in Sunday school for a while, trying to invite them to come in to kind of get to know me and, you know, and teach about uh, different things in, you know, Baptist theology and other things, and I got, I got the, they, they, we all talked about learning about different religions. And so uh, Buddhism and Hindu, one of the things we talked about, and we didn't do in depth like this. We just kind of gave some, just some general truths. But um, we were talking about reincarnation. And, and, I, and I, said, um, I said, yeah, so, so, you know, what they believed was, was that whatever life that you live, then you, if you lived a noble life, then you came back as a certain creature, a more noble creature, or if you lived a bad life, you came back as this or whatever. And I don't, I, I don't remember if that was exactly accurate, but I said, so my wife, for instance, Angie, if she came back, if she died and came back, she would come back as an elephant. And I mean, the women in that class looked at me. I mean, they looked at me like, I cannot believe you just called your wife an elephant. But what they didn't understand was that an elephant in their culture was considered a royal, noble animal. Like it was the most, one of the most coveted, loved, cherished animals you know, in their culture. And so, so I was giving her a high compliment. And, and I mean, it, you know, typical pastoral snafu. You think something's going to be funny and enjoyable. And I mean, it just brought a complete, like, I can't believe you called your wife that. But Angie laughed it off the whole time. You know, it was, it was great. So anyway, I just want to tell that story. So we're not going to repeat that tonight. Amen, Angie? Okay. So <laughs> I've already done it, yeah. So classical Buddhism maintains that cycles of reincarnations are necessary in order to attain nirvana. The teachings of the Buddha are concerned with the ramifications of the four noble truths and the eightfold path. So you've got suffering, its cause, its cessation, and then the way which leads to this cessation. Okay? In its shortest form, Buddha's teaching may be summarized as follows. Birth is sorrow. Age is sorrow. Sickness is sorrow. Death is sorrow. Clinging to earthly things is sorrow. Birth and rebirth, the chain of reincarnation, result from the thirst of life together with passion and desire. The only escape from this thirst is to follow the eightfold path. Right belief, right resolve, right word, right act, right life, right effort, right thinking, right meditation. I would have a hard time remembering all that um, to, to apply it. The goal of Buddhism is what, y'all? Nirvana, yeah, you, you'll hear that a lot. They talk about that a lot. A definition of this term is almost impossible for the simple reason that Buddha himself gave no clear idea and in all probability possessed none of this state because it does not exist, correct? He was indeed asked by more than one of his disciples whether nirvana was post-mundane or post-celestial existence or whether it was annihilation. Fair questions. To all these questions, however, how did he answer it? He didn't answer it, for it was characteristic of his teachings that they were practically confined to the present life and concerned themselves but little either with problems of merely academic philosophy or with the unknowable, 
the summon bonum is released from karma and reincarnation, a goal which is to be attained by knowledge and which consists in absorption into or reunion with the over soul. My goodness. This involves the annihilation of individuality. Is that true? No. No. It, it, I mean, all this collective, you know, stuff that we all go into one and all that, I mean, no. The, the, the Bible teaches something totally different. We are all one, yes, but we're one in who? Christ, right. But we're still each individual people that God has created for divine purpose in his image. Um, and annihilation, I mean, we're not annihilated. Now, that, that, there's a, annihilationism is a, uh, is, a, is a common misunderstanding among some, some believers, uh, and it comes from a humanistic understanding of God in the sense that they think, well, God, if God is so good and God is so wonderful and God is so merciful, there's no way that God would, you know, consign somebody to hell for all eternity. So surely, it, 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 we've misread something somewhere. Surely it's not eternal torment in hell. Surely he just blasts us out of existence and it's over. Uh, I mean, that's a great thought, but that's not biblical because the Bible teaches something completely opposite. The Bible absolutely, positively, 100% teaches torment eternally in hell for those that do not believe in Jesus Christ. Um, that is not for me to change. That is not for you to change. That is not for any theologian to change ever because Jesus taught that. He taught that very clearly in, in his words. So you're not annihilated unless you want to, you know, unless you want to describe annihilation as being cast into hell for all eternity. I mean, I guess you, whether you're constantly annihilated 24-7 in hell for all eternity, which is just a horrifying thought, but it's absolutely true. I mean, that's, that's, that's how it goes. And I mean, it's just... It's one of those difficult teachings that the Bible has that people don't want to hear and don't, don't, you know, don't, don't want to know. So, moving on. Now, this guy, uh, Dr. Wing uh, Sit Chan, the professor of Chinese culture at Dartmouth, um, he, gave, he gives some really neat notes here that I think will be very helpful to you as he kind of contrasts uh, some, some different uh, teachings of Buddhism as compared to Christianity. So the first thing, he says, Buddha taught four noble truths. The first of the noble truths is the truth of suffering. Existence is pain. Not untrue, but that's not all existence is, because it is irre irrevocably, is that, am I saying that right? Irrevocably, irrevocably bound to the cycle of births and deaths. In this connection, suffering is an undeniable fact of existence. The second noble truth is the truth of the cause of suffering. And the cause is craving or desire, which is in turn due to ignorance. The Buddha was not interested in the deduction of categories. He was wholly concerned with the practical problem of removing the cause of suffering. To this end, he will put forth the doctrines of impermanence and non-ego. This does not mean a denial of the empirical self, but a refutation of the permanent, abiding, personal identity. Like that is a different thing, right? They're both the same. I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're an abiding personal entity, you're an empirical self. I mean, they're, they're both the same thing. The third noble truth is the truth of the cessation of suffering. So when suffering is destroyed, nirvana, negatively the extinction of passions and positively the state of bliss, is attained. One then becomes an arat or the worthy one either in this life or after death. And the fourth noble truth is the truth of the way to, to remove suffering. This involves a comprehensive system of moral cultivation, but the fundamental way is the noble eightfold path. Right views of the four noble truths, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort to avoid evil state and produce good state of mind through the practice of morality, meditation, and wisdom, right mindfulness, and right concentration. I mean, nothing, nothing wrong with, with those things in and of themselves. It just doesn't get you to nirvana. I mean, our, our interpretation of nirvana would be what? I mean, if we were going to try to cross the theology out, what, what is our nirvana? It would be heaven, but, I mean, you don't, you, you don't achieve heaven by doing these things. That would be called what? 
works righteousness, right? You do good deeds, therefore you get to heaven. Although good deeds are evidence that Jesus is in your heart, the way that we get to heaven, the way everybody gets to heaven, that God says through Christ is through faith in him, period, okay? <clears throat> These form the standard of our threefold karma. How many of y'all have heard that term before? Yeah. It is one of the few Buddhist terms that you will hear on a regular basis out of the mouths of professing Christians, okay? And let me, I, I try not to be, you know, hot or, or mean about this, but live feed everybody. Listen, if you are a Christian, do not talk about karma. Karma is a Buddhist principle. Yes, Dick? You could, you could say it that way, yeah. But, but, it's, it's, um, it, but it's more than that, but you could, you could say that, and he's, he's going to explain it. I mean, we'll, we'll get to, to, the, to the real definition. The closest thing to Christian theology, maybe if you wanted to say, well, what, what in Christianity is even close to that, would be in Galatians where Paul says, I mean, I used it in the message this past Sunday, you reap what you what? Right. But again, that ain't karma. <laughs> Amen? That's not karma, Okay. So we, we've got Christian, live feed, if y'all are listening out there, we, don't, don't use that term. It's confusing, okay? It, it's, it's, it's just confusing. It's not, it's not in the Bible. It's not a Christian term. So these form, these form the standard of our three-hole karma, or conduct, speech, and thought. The most important element of these teachings is the middle path between two extremes of passions and asceticism. Throughout the entire history of Buddhism, the middle path has remained the central concept although its interpretation varies with the different schools. To the Buddha, it was a way of life, a sensible, moderate, comprehensive, practical system of ethics. He called the tropes normal, noble because he regarded nobility as a moral and not a racial quality. This order established on moral principles a brotherhood without distinction of castes. So see, he was... He was trying to fight against that caste system through his, through his system of ethics, which was a noble thing. It just was everything he taught was wrong, according to God. <clears throat> Oops, sorry. Maybe duplicate there. It is important to remember that there is a common denominator to Zen Buddhism, I Ching, and all Eastern religious or ph philosophical backgrounds. None of them believe in what? The existence of a personal God. Who in the world would not want a personal God? Well, I mean, I guess people would not want a personal God if that personal God was going to hold them accountable and was going to uh, discipline them and was going to, uh, you know, maybe, maybe use hardship to teach them things and things of that nature. But I, I could not imagine a God not being personal. I couldn't. A God that you, that you can't have a relationship with? I mean, I mean to have a relationship with, with God, it has to be, it has to be a person, Right? It has to be a personality or whatever. So none of these, none of these believe in the existence of a personal God. None of them believe that we can address God or him as father, which the Bible is very explicit about that. All of these, however, are trying to establish a quest for truth or establish an identification with this unknowable essence. They cannot define God since God is the great unknowable. They claim unity with some kind of a knowable nature. They use Hindu philosophical terms because Buddhism was derived from Hinduism. So, of all the, 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 um, of all the false religions that we have studied so far, what does this remind you the most of? I'm just curious. It reminds you of anything we studied so far? Hmm? I was going to say Scientology or Christian science. It, it's... The, the formlessness of it reminds me more of Christian science. The weirdness of it reminds me more of Scientology. But it's just very strange. While frequently regarded as a new religion, it is, strictly speaking, only a reformation of Brahmanism and cannot be understood without some knowledge of the conditions preceding it. The religious system of India, as outlined in its oldest religious books, the Vedas, had reached in the Brahmins and sutras a degree of ritualism such as perhaps never existed elsewhere. 
And this formalism produced a revolt. And from time to time arose various teachers, philosophers, and reformers of whom the most influential was who? Buddha, yeah. So I guess in a sense, he was their reformer. He was their Luther or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Jim just made a very good point. In most all of these that we've studied, the founder or of the false religion, one of the primary things that he said the angel told them or whatever the goal was, was to, was to bring back Christianity to its purest form. And so Buddha is trying to bring back this system to a right form. Phil, you want to say something? Okay. Yeah. That's right. I think that's correct, yes. Yeah. Yeah, we, 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 we were not, our family were not Muhammad Ali fans. My dad would not let us, he was just, and, I th- and, it, and it, it was all about, uh, didn't he refuse to serve? I, th- I think that was his big issue with Muhammad Ali. He ought to serve like everybody, you know, it was just one of those difficult times, so. All right. Uh, okay, Luke 21.8, Christ said, take heed that you not be deceived, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and the time is drawing near. Do not, therefore, do not go, therefore, after them. That is a very important verse. A cult is a group of people gathering around somebody's interpretation of religious truth, which inevitably claims to be in accord with historic Christianity. But it always ends up denying the centrality of the message that Christ is incarnate deity. Okay? That's, and I'm going to tell you, that that's going to be one of the most difficult things in America. It's one of the most difficult things for us to, to deal with. And I, and I don't understand why. I think it's because we all like to, be, like to be nice. And we don't want to say that anybody's, you know, worshiping a false religion. And plus, you, you hear me on this, this not judging that I, that I bring forward in messages and everything. I mean, I, I truly believe... That, that the Lord has placed upon my heart and my soul the commitment until my dying breath to try to undo that lie that, that Satan has put in all of our minds, that we are not to judge. I mean, that is, that is so far beyond the truth of the gospel, and I do not understand how Satan did it, but he did it. I mean, the average person, I mean, you can even... You can even when you're talking to somebody about something and they say, they say something about somebody that's true, but it, but it may be harsh or it's, it's like a, a negative truth about that person. They go, oh, 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 oh but, I, but I'm not supposed to, they'll catch themselves. Oh, but I'm not supposed to judge. I'm not supposed to judge. I mean, is it true? Did the person really do that? And is it against what the Bible says? Then that judgment is sound and glorifies God. I mean, if we don't judge then why are there speed limit signs all up and down this road out here? Why are there rules at all if we don't judge? So it, it's, it's really strange how that is caught on in our society. And I, and I believe part of it is we have become so pluralistic and, and, and we, we just think that everybody should just mind their own business and whatever you want to do is fine as long as what you do doesn't impact my life. You just do whatever you want to do. Does the Bible teach that? No. I mean, we're not supposed, the Bible teaches us to not be meddlesome, okay? Nosy and meddlesome. But if there's something going on in somebody's life that's a professing believer that could damage them, damage their family, or damage the church, the Bible is very clear that we are to lovingly and gently try to get involved and do something about it. But what's that? Judging. Mm. Maybe that's why we don't do it so much anymore. Because we bought into the lie that we don't judge anymore. You think? Messy? Really, Jim? I think it can, can too. Just like uh, maybe, maybe even be the cause of somebody being put on Calvary's cross in the first century, maybe. Moving on right along here. Jesus sought to save the world, not himself. Did he do it again? My goodness. My goodness. 
Somebody does not want this talk tonight. wonder who that would be. Somebody with horns and a pitchfork. <laughs> Don't. Steve, you are good. You're not helping me, Stephen. You're supposed to be helping me, man. You're a serving deacon now, man. Valentine's Day, yeah, that's right. Oh, by the way, she got a Valentine gift. Honey, did you not get a Valentine gift this morning? You're hiding behind John back there. Did your husband give you anything for Valentine's Day this morning? He did? Okay. No alcoholic beverages, right? Okay, good. All right. Jesus sought to save the world, not himself. Buddha began by saving himself and then taught the world. Do you see that, that? That's a really interesting contrast. That's a very telling contrast. The aim of Jesus is faith and individual existence in heaven in the presence of God. The summum bonum of Buddha is knowledge and the annihilation of self and nirvana. So if you're a rational human being, which one of those should you choose? Christ, yes. In the face, but we're not supposed to what? <laughs> Y'all are kidding in the face of such essential divergencies, the parallels alleged to, alleged to exist between Buddha and Jesus seem to be cases of accidental coincidence, and it is almost certain that despite the travel between Palestine and India, which may have influenced to some degree the apocryphal gospels on the one hand and late northern Buddhism on the other, Christianity and Buddhism developed to all, developed to all intents and purposes independently. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying that both belief systems, while there may have been, been some, I've heard this, cross-pollination or, 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 or sharing of theology or sharing of terms that they predominantly develop by themselves separate of each other. That's, that's what he means by that. Now, I'm not an expert on the apocryphal gospels uh, or the pseudepigraphal gospels, um, I can speak more about the pseudepigraphal gospels. The pseudepigraphal gospels were, uh, they were, they were, they were deemed as heretical as were the apocryphal gospels. And what they believe happened was, was that people that were maybe followers of Paul, followers of Peter, followers of the apostles, that were that were maybe a couple generations after them, took their names, took very key things about about their writing characteristics, and wrote in their names new gospels. It would be like me thinking, wow, if I want to write a book and get it published, what great theologian should I say that I am? And if I watched dozens of his sermons and kind of learned his mannerisms and learned the phrases that he used and studied his life and read a bunch of his books, Adrian Rogers, then I could maybe write a book, call myself Adrian Rogers and write the book. And if I had got it close enough, people might believe it. But people that really knew him better than I knew him from reading, people that knew him in real life would probably know that it wasn't true. That's what apocryphal gospels were, okay, if you were ever wondering about that. I mean, uh, uh, pseudepigraphal gospels were. Moving right along, there is an imitation of the methodology of Christianity. Not the content, but the methodology. Pragmatically, something in Christianity works. The religions of the world and the cultic, stru the cultic structures of the world recognize that. What is the primary thing that, mo that most grab onto from Christianity? What's the primary thing? No, I'm talking, I'm talking about actions. Serving. Serving others, right? We had that problem uh, in American Christianity back in, oh my goodness, I shouldn't have started talking about this because I can't remember the date. I want to say, where was Hell's Kitchen? Not the show with the dude, not him. It, there was a place in New York that was called Hell's Kitchen. Was it, was it the Bronx? or any, Anyway, there was a group that went into New York City and some of the repressed areas, and they claimed to be going in there trying to take gospel gospel transformation into this area. But what they discovered was, was they were going in there and serving people and loving people, but all they were doing was feeding them. What were they not doing as they were feeding them? They were not sharing Christ, speaking about the Word of God, talking about sin, talking about heaven, talking about hell. They were just, they were, they were helping people with their needs, 
They were, they were loving them and feeding them and caring for them and all that as Jesus shows us in the Scriptures, but there was no gospel truth on their tongue, okay? And that, that, the term that came out of that era is called social gospel. Who's ever heard that term before? Social gospel. It means we're doing the deeds. We're doing the deeds, but the underlying theology of while we're doing the deeds, we are not telling them and we're not sharing with them. Can somebody get saved in that way? Probably not. I mean, perhaps they could. Why are these people doing all this? Well, we're doing it because we love Jesus. Oh, well, Jesus, tell me, about, tell me about Jesus. But if that question is not asked, and Jesus is not talked about, or the Scripture is not talked about, chances are they're not going to be saved because they're not going to hear the gospel. Okay? Uh, Francis of Assisi, is that, did I say that right? They would say... Um, uh, something share the gospel regularly and when necessary use words and 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 that would that was that set off a firestorm of debate okay because the debate is jesus didn't just tell us to go good go go and do good deeds we have to preach the truth how beautiful are the feet of those who do what bring the good news so so yes i mean i mean yes jim Yeah, no, I would not call that social gospel. I would call that, like, I would call that dis distributing the Word of God. Yeah, there you go. Right, they just gave him the Word. Right. Of course, you, you, just, just to not confuse what I'm saying here, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong with ministering to the needs of others, okay? Nothing wrong with feeding them. Did I lose it again? Yep. Nothing wrong with feeding them. Maybe God's telling me, yes, there is. I don't know. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But, but you, have to, you, you have to teach the truth of the gospel at the same time you do it. You have to. I mean, I mean and who, who, who gave us that model? Yes. What did Jesus do? Yes. He ministered to the physical to open up the doorway to the what? Spiritual. He fed them, the loaves and the fish, but then what did he do after that? He taught them the gospel. I mean, I mean, every time he, he ministered in the physical, he always taught the spiritual after that, every, every single time. And, and when he fed them, how many showed up? Thousands. When he told them the cost of following him, how many hung around? Very few. <laughs> Very few, okay? <clears throat> so there is an imitation of the methodology of Christianity, not the content, but the methodology, pragmatically, something in Christianity works. The religions of the world and the cultic structures of the world recognize that. I mean, who, who could look at the hospital systems of America and deny the fact that Christianity has not done incredible things for, for our people of this nation in the medical field? I mean, it, it, it's, I mean and the hand of God was all, all on that, all over that. They are taking Christian terminology and pouring their theology into the mold of our terminology. Then it is sold to the Western world quite successfully. Zen Buddhism, for example, is engineered and designed to appeal to the Western mind. And these Eastern, the, and, and what, the, and I would say in Christianity, the only thing that we have ever done that is in that realm, like designing something for the Western mind. The only thing we have ever done, I would say, in Christianity is have different translations, right? Of the Word of God, so that it goes into different languages. Uh, even in America, you have dynamic equivalents. You've got literal word for word. You've got all types of different translations to try to, you know, help people at different academic or education levels and whatever so that they can understand the gospel. We've got children's Bibles, you know, and stuff like that. So that's all we've ever, that I know of, that's all we've ever done to, to do that. Let's see. In these Eastern cultic structures, everybody is looking within. In Christianity, God has us look where? Out to the cross of Jesus Christ and to his resurrection that is our deliverance through faith in Christ. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't set this thing back up again. I have no idea why, the, why this happens. My battery is 
is uh, fine, and uh, I know we've got a strong internet. I know we do, so I don't know what's going on here, okay? Sorry about that. Okay, the facets of Buddhism. Um, Mahayana and Hanayana. Y'all want to try to say that ten times real fast? These remained comparatively unimportant, however, until the schism in A.D. 100 into the Mahayana and Hayayana, or the great vehicle and the little vehicle, the latter still adhered strictly in the main to the original tenets of Buddhism. The Mahayanists, on the contrary, who formed by far the larger sect, devoted themselves to all manner of speculation, being influenced not only by Hinduism, but at a later period by shamanism as well. The Mahayana postulates the existence of a thousand Buddhas with the supreme God. Buddhism was introduced into Tibet about the 7th century A.D., here is evolved the celestial types of the Buddhas, which appear on earth as men, who are represented on earth by the Dalai Lama at Lhasa, and is the type of Bodhisattva Maitreya, the future earthly Buddha and the savior of the world. So I guess they did not get together with L. Ron Hubbard, amen? Because L. Ron supposedly already fulfilled that. So they, don't, they obviously don't feel that way about L. Ron Hubbard. Buddhism was introduced into China in its Mahayanistic form by the emperor Mingti in 61 AD and was carried to Japan where numerous sects have arisen, although the results have been little more than a further departure from the original faith. Zen. Who's ever heard of Zen Buddhism before? Probably the more popular one. Uh, I've heard that term used, and I, a friend of mine uh, that is no longer with us back years ago uh, he dabbled in a little bit of Zen Buddhism. I, he never really joined the group or anything, but he did. He read on it and talked about it a lot and talked about karma and talked about nirvana and talked about all that stuff. Um, so that, that's, I mean, I, that's the only exposure I really had was him. But Zen, as it is known in America, is derived from the Japanese branch of the, medi of the meditation school of Buddhist philosophy. Today, Zen claims 9.6 million followers in Japan and millions more around the world. Zen cannot be taken lightly, especially when it receives favorable attention from magazines of the standing of Time, Newsweek, Life, U.S. News, World Report, and so forth. Zealous followers of Zen trace their origin to Buddha, who they claim imparted to one of his disciples, Mahakasyapa. How would you like to have that name? What has become known as the doctrine of the Buddha mind Buddha, as the legend goes, merely picked the flower in silence and thus communicated the mystical figment, fragment of his mind, hence the emphasis upon the Buddha mind in Zen. When we come to the Zen variety of Buddhism, we find a strong emphasis on the present and on practical meditation. The late Alan Watts, American proponent of Zen, described it in this way. Perhaps the special flavor of Zen is best described as a certain directness. In other schools of Buddhism, awakening or bodhi seems remote and almost superhuman, something to be reached only after many lives of patient effort. I mean, how do they know that? How do they know that they've come back multiple times? They, 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 you never hear about that. They, they say they do, but you never, I mean, how do they know? How would they know that, that that happened? But in Zen, there is always the feeling that awakening is something quite natural, something start, startlingly obvious, which may occur at any moment. If it involves a difficulty, it is just that it is much too simple. Zen is also direct in its way of teaching, for it points directly and openly to the truth and does not trifle with symbolism. I guess I'm, I'm assuming the Buddhist truth, not truth in general. Zen is hence revolutionary, holding that enlightenment comes with clarification and simplification through acting out of old values of time and experience and depending upon only the supreme experience now. One state of consciousness and the next cannot be measured by hours or miles, as the master tries to say in a koan, the standard advice of Zen using one of the 1,700 traditional questions to highlight it. The snap of a finger can be a lesson, indicating that this very moment is the immediate experience of reality, pastime, and embracing all dimensions. I have no idea what all that means. I mean, I don't have a clue what that means. I have no idea. I, I mean, the, the, more, the deeper I read into this, the less I understood what they were trying to say. 
From them, reality is not objective, correlative, correlative. Somebody help me. I mean, I'm reading hundreds of words up here. I guess my brain is shutting down. Correlative truth, but subjective, egocentric reflection, which becomes reality if they deign to participate in its manifestation. The following quotations deal with the theology of Zen Buddhism in a general way, for if ever a system was devoid of theology except by implication and interpretation, it is Zen. And I did not put those quotations in there, I don't think. Zen is at once the knower and the known. It is also the factor which unites the two in one. It is a way to truth and not facts about truth. As Dr. Suzuki puts it, when we think we know something, there is something we do not know. For there is still an antithesis, the known and the knower, and Zen seeks that which lies beyond antithesis, however subtle. So we're talking about how, how Buddhists view revelation. And, I mean, it, I don't know. It, it's, it's hard for me to, yes. I haven't been doing the microphone, man, but you're talking so much, Jim. I'm, I'm going to catch flack from the people listening because I can't hear what you're saying. This, this is an old saying. It says, if you can't dazzle them with brilliance, then you baffle them with <laughs> a bunch of words. You know the rest. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, th that's what they're definitely doing for Revelation. I mean, Revelation is a whole lot simpler with the Bible, man. I mean, my goodness gracious. I mean, God spoke it, they wrote it, and we have it. I, I don't, this, this stuff here, when we think, all right, so when we think we know something, there is something we do not know. For there is still an antithesis, the known and the knower, and Zen seeks that which lies beyond antithesis, however subtle. Strictly speaking, however, Zen is incommunicable. Even as the Tao that can be expressed is not the eternal Tao, so Zen translated into the terms and apparatus of the intellect is not true Zen. So it's unknowable. So why is it even there? There's therefore an inevitable distinction between Zen and the forms of Zen, between expressions of Zen and the facts about Zen. Authority. So we got two minutes, I'm gonna quit. So authority, where do we get, where do, what authority do we go to? God, the scripture, right. That's our authority. And that authority comes, comes from God through, through the Bible, um, through the Holy Spirit. And then we come to church, and the, the Bible is very clear about how leaders are selected in the church. And then those leaders are under shepherds that operate at the authority and discretion and leading of the Holy Spirit and the flock. And in our church model, we have a congregation, so there's... Our bylaws and our constitution um, uh, notate, instruct, there, there, are, there are limitations and there are freedoms. There are, there are certain areas in which we as a staff have freedom, and what I mean by that is we have a budget that is approved at the beginning or the end or the beginning of the year, and so we, the congregation, gives us discretion to operate within, within that budget and spend those monies on what God is leading us to do, and then we equip the body of Christ, hopefully, to do those ministries. That, that's our authority structure. Um, this authority structure here, uh, well, let, let's read it, and then we'll call it a night. Zen has nothing to teach us in the way of intellectual analysis, nor has it any set doctrines which are imposed on its followers for acceptance. Wow, that sounds pretty, pretty free. In this respect, Zen is quite chaotic, if you choose to say so, probably Zen followers may have sets of doctrines, but they have them on their own account and for their own benefit. They do not owe the fact to Zen. Therefore, they are in Zen. There are in Zen no sacred books or dogmatic tenets, nor are there any symbolic formula through which an access might be gained into the signification of Zen. So if I am asked then what Zen teaches, I would answer what? Whatever teachings there are in Zen, they come out of one's own mind. 
Where do we see that in the Scripture? What, what time period in the Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, do we see this come out? Yes. In the Judges, it clearly says during those days, everybody did what? What was right in their own eyes. And we see the destruction and the dark time that it was in Israel in the time of Judges. Horrible. We teach ourselves Zen merely points the way. Unless this pointing is teaching, there is certainly nothing in Zen purposely set up as its cardinal doctrines or as its fundamental philosophy. So, I hate to put you through another Wednesday night of Buddhism, but um, I, I'm trying to be faithful to, to this, this brother of ours who's deceased and in heaven. I mean, he, this is his life's work, so I'm, try, I'm trying to pay respect to it and give it exactly how he's written it. 